Forge family, our time together in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, revealed multiple problems with the English text. Translation committees have traditionally chosen to punctuate verses 8 and 9, separating how men and women are to engage with worship in the church. As I taught last time, I believe a more faithful punctuation puts the period after the word women in verse 9, which includes women in prayer, not contrasting men in prayer with women in inappropriate dress and hairstyles. Paul's fatherly care and concern for women was seen in his urging them to sit quietly and learn all they could. There was a deadly threat by the Roman legions sent by Nero to Ephesus to capture, debase, and kill Christian men and women. That produced a lethal atmosphere for the house churches, and the apostle was instructing Timothy how to pastor and equip the churches in a time of persecution. As the verse 12, where the English text orders silence from women, that women should not teach, Paul teaches in the, that in the present tense, and therefore the verse is better translated, I do not allow a woman to teach at this time. If a woman had risen to authority, it would have made her and the house church vulnerable to gossip that could lead to possible betrayal to the legions. Paul is simply saying to the sisters, keep your heads down in this season. The passage ended with Paul drawing from the fall account in Genesis 3, setting man as authority over the women. It was time for the men in the house churches to step up and lead to protect the women. Lastly, the consistent man mistranslation of verse 15, where the salvation of women was linked to their childbearing, disregarded the definite article in the Greek text, referring to the childbearing, to the birth of Jesus, to become the Christ in whom salvation is found in him alone for men and women. Let's pray. Father, thank you for shedding light on this text. Thank you that your fatherly care was infused in the words of Paul as he instructed Timothy about prayer and example in the house churches. We embrace the teaching that there is no male or female, Gentile or Jew, slave or free in the kingdom of God. We also at this time embrace the teaching that there's no racial lines of division and hate in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Lord the Spirit, Swing wide the doors of Forge Church to minister the good news of salvation and freedom in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now turn with me to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Again, I believe there's no chapter break here. The subject of the instructions to Timothy are the same, dealing with worship and leadership in the churches. Verse 1 is the bridge. Quote, it is a trustworthy statement. If, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do, unquote. While it's a trustworthy statement, it is better translated faith-filled statement, rooted in the Greek word pistos, for faithful. And then we get thrown into the controversy of the translation committees who don't honor the Greek text but choose to use other translations to arrive at their conclusions. Nowhere in verse 1 is the Greek in the Greek text is there a male pronoun or possessive. 
Verse 1 should be translated, quote, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work that they desire to do, unquote. Now, the committees have rolled right over the chapter break dealing with women in worship in the house churches, and they've removed any possibility that a woman might be part of leadership. For shame. The reference to the word overseer is the word episkopos, a word borrowed from the marketplace where a foreman or an overseer could be seen as one charged with getting things done to code, a curator, a guardian, or a superintendent. A century later, this word episkopos was used as the word for bishop. At the time of this letter to Timothy, that class of leadership did not exist. The overseer here is one who sets themselves to the oversight and direction of the spiritual life of the house church. The same word is used in other places in the New Testament for elder. The word aspire comes from the word for passionate desire and has to be interpreted by the context in which you find it in the New Testament. In one verse, it can be evil passions, and in another context, it can be passionate desire that's godly. Here, the latter fits. Paul lists qualifications for the office of overseer in verses 2 to 7. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be the one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Unquote. Nowhere in the whole third chapter are found male pronouns and possessives in the Greek text. Now I'm sure you see the immediate problem with the qualifications listed above. So let's, let's unravel them. The first words describing an overseer are above reproach. It could be translated blameless. No charge can be brought against this candidate for leadership. The root of the word is to be, quote, not to be taken hold of, unquote. Some years ago, I crafted the term spiritual Velcro. In the case of qualifying overseer, bishop, or elder, nothing sticks to them. Their past has been dealt They've been dealt with before God. The blood of Jesus has washed them clean, and their present life is godly. Now next, the husband of one wife. Okay, translation committees have just concluded that an overseer must be a married man. Not so in the Greek text. It literally says a one-woman sort of man. If this standard was used to vet Paul, who was not married, as per his comments in Corinthians, Paul would not have qualified. I believe the sense of the text is that a married man whose heart is set on his own wife for life, a single man whose heart is likewise set on one wife for life, and likewise a single or married woman with the same commitment to one husband in covenant marriage, that fulfills that, that word 
more completely and truthfully. Tradition has this passage used to prohibit second marriages. But Paul, in Corinthians, already wrote that that was allowed. Tradition has used this passage to rule against polygamy and bigamy among overseers. The qualification point here is faithfulness in marriage, even from one standing outside its bonds. Third, Paul uses the word temperate, which can include vigilance, to be calm and circumspect, the use of wise caution, not addicted to rash responses, and all forms of excess. Vernacular might include even keeled, so that that personal stability and control are evident. Fourth is sober. For sober-mindedness and the ability for earnest processing. That is followed by respectable, which speaks of one whose outward life is filled with orderly living, resulting in good behavior, whose base is inner stability. Next comes hospitable. In the realm of house churches spread around the Roman Empire, there were traveling teachers, prophets, evangelists, apostles, and other noted servants of the gospel. As they traveled to minister, they were welcomed into homes of other leadership in whatever village, town, or city that they arrived in. Here, the overseers are to be open-homed, welcoming the servants of God. They're not to be insular, living behind closed doors, hoarding resources, etc. This is not just, hey, come on over for dinner with your family, but instead to be open to inconvenient needs and opportunities to bless. The former is entertainment. The latter is hospitality. Seventh, overseers are required to be able to teach. The text is stronger in Greek. This is not just someone who can repeat a teaching who they took notes on, nor is it someone who can open a text and talk about its meaning. Here, there's a sense of skill. I've known men and women who were in overship leadership who had no such skill. They borrowed freely from other teachers, but even then, they could not speak with the impact in the text. Likewise, I've known leaders of small, tiny outreaches and missions and ministries who are gifted with that skill to teach by Holy Spirit with powerful results. If you aspire to leadership, ask Holy Spirit to skill you in the text of Scripture, its interpretation, and its presentation. Eighth, the overseer must not be addicted to wine. Now, because of the scarcity of water or the purity of water, wine was the go-to beverage in the Roman Empire. The issue here is not the alcohol. Paul later encourages Timothy to take wine for his health. The issue here is addiction, the fallback choice when you're under pressure, the choice to take the edges off. Excuse me. The necessity of wine so that one can fall asleep, etc. An overseer, while not banned from wine, would have to be careful for wine can take over reason, health, behavior, priorities, and lifestyle. The ninth qualification is linked back to the wine addiction, and the linking word is not. It is tied to quarrelsome, violent behavior, violent-tempered, petulant behavior with a propensity to strike with words or fists as a direct reaction to too much wine. 
Overseers are to be free from such expressions. Tenth, in contrast to the fighter mode, the overseer is to be gentle, or as one translator says, sweetly reasonable. He or she is to be instant in the moment of heated exchange, sudden insertion of false teaching, or the raw demands made for justice. The soft answer that turns away wrath is wrapped around this word gentle. Like it, the word uncontentious places the overseer on a different platform, wherein they have no dog in the fight. They stand aside and call on Holy Spirit to give them wisdom and discernment to dissolve any contention and kerfuffle in the house church. Their spirit-filled answers and directions are to be noted and honored. Twelfth, Paul raises the issue of money management and covetousness. The overseer is to be one who is not tied to the apron strings of money. Later in 1 Timothy, Paul teaches that these overseers, men or women, are to be paid for their service. They're to be supported for their service to the body. Additionally, the overseer has oversight over any funds set aside for offerings, for benevolence, outreach, support of God's servants, etc. They are to be free and unentangled from the love of money. Paul goes so far to say that the overseer is not to be found uh, uh, um, you know, with a, a, an addiction or a, a coveting of others' support or resources. Could also be translated not avaricious. Now in verse 4, in, in the NASB translation, the New American Standard Bible translation that I'm just using as a baseline, here there's an insertion at the beginning of the verse 4 that says, he must be, quote unquote, which was added to smooth the reading of the text. It's not here in the Greek. Therefore, my translation would be, they must be the one who manages their household well, keeping their children under stress excuse me, keeping their children under control with all dignity. The Greek word here for manage is to rule or to preside over. Now, I confess I almost laughed out loud when I first translated this from the Greek. In that culture, the wives were the ones who managed the home, handled the budgets, trained the slaves, bore children, kept a, a setting of peace and resources for the husband, and warmed his bed on occasion. The only rule, role, if you will, of the husbands was discipline. It seemed to me to be a very long reach to push discipline into the place of management and oversight, which wives did every day. In many ways, married sisters in Ephesus were more skilled at management of households and children than their married husbands. The point here also concerns the oversight of the behavior and lifestyles of children so as to result in joy, respect, dignity, gravity, and sanctity demonstrated in obedience and moral uprightness. All those latter foundations are best inculcated early in the life of a child so that they begin to shine in their voluntary submission to dad and mom and to father God. And overseers are to labor to put that to pass in uh, in their homes, to see that come about in their homes. Paul parenthetically continues in verse 5 with his insight that if an overseer cannot demonstrate by his disciplined household and children 
that his godly manner is fully functional, then, quote, how will they take care of the church of God, unquote. Paul links household care to fellowship care, pointing out that he views the church as a family and that joy, respect, dignity, gravity, and sanctity demonstrated in obedience and moral uprightness will flow outward in the house churches under the overseers. Fourteenth in position of qualifications is the requirement that the overseer candidate is not a new convert, a new believer. You might say there, uh, hey, pastor, didn't Paul and Titus name new elders and overseers from among new converts in new house churches as they traveled and ministered? And the answer would be yes, by Holy Spirit's guidance. But in Ephesus, those house churches had been present for 10 years. That said, it was necessary to choose an overseer candidate that would not be vulnerable to pride and conceit in being lifted from former ignorance of or opposition to Jesus Christ. Paul points out that conceit was that which Satan embraced in his attempt to rise to be Lord of heaven, to supersede, to supplant God himself. Lastly, an overseer must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that they might not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. If the overseer were to be pompous, flashy, known in the marketplace as sly, as one who took every advantage in commerce and community life, one who felt entitled to honor above and beyond their place, or who was known among unbelievers as one who was openly judgmental of sinners, then that candidate was vulnerable to be ensnared by Satan to do his bidding, not that of the word of God. Given that the pronouns and possessives in the past seven verses are neuter, in English that would be, we, we say, I, you, he, she, or it. Okay, the it would be the neuter. Okay, third place, third, you know, um, third in the tenses, okay? So in verse seven, the direct, this direct link is pres present at the end of chapter two. And I trust you can see that Paul has laid out a way now, obviously, not during persecution season, but later for women to rise to be overseers if Holy Spirit has gifted them, matured them, and they desire the labor of the position of an overseer. Patricia King, Joyce Meyer, Cindy Jacobs, Gloria Copeland, Paula White, Beth Moore, Heidi Baker, Kay Arthur, Doris Wagner, Terry Pearsons, and Graham Lotz. Barbara Yoder, Marilyn Hickey, and Audrey Weatherell Johnson come quickly to my mind. On the charismatic end of the evangelical church today, many of the churches are led by pastoral couples who share pulpits and church management. There, these 15 qualifications for leadership apply as they become overseers. Now, let's quickly see how these 15 qualifications, or a subset of them, apply to deacons, both male and female, in verses 8 to 15. Quote, deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested. Let them serve as deacons, if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, 
but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. In the book of Acts, there were seven men of whom Stephen was one, chosen out of the fellowships in Jerusalem by the apostles to oversee the care and feeding of of widows who had been disenfranchised from the care system of the synagogues when they turned to believe in the risen Christ. And and those seven men are often thought of as forerunners, as as deacons. They're, They're the forerunners for that type of service to the churches. Now, Paul is instructing Timothy which qualifications bridge between the office of overseer and those who serve in the house churches and their temporal needs. Now, just real simple. Overseers look after the spiritual needs. Deacons look after temporal needs. So this indicates, you know, that we need to look at at this word deacons. So there's no definite article in front of the word deacons, which means that that these men and women are part of a class of those who serve the house churches. Men are to be settled, dignified, and not loose canons. They're not to say one thing to someone and then turn and say something totally different to another on the same question. They're not to be double-tongued. Additionally, they're not to be addicted to wine, nor greedy for financial or reputational gain. The latter two lines, you know, the latter two, uh, they're requirements for overseers as well. Now note that the lack of the skilled to teach qualification is a dividing line between overseers and deacons. Paul wrote that the deacons were to be those men and women who hold fast to the mystery of the faith. Now, what is that? Okay, that mystery of the faith is the doctrine that the coming into the world of the Messiah, the Christ, was hidden from mankind until a time set in heaven and faith in Christ comes to those who trust and believe in Christ for righteousness and salvation and who do not have their eyes blinded by Satan, the God of this world. Right beliefs coupled with right ethics are what Paul is aiming at. The deacon candidates were to be tested to determine if they were indeed beyond reproach, the first and guiding qualification for overseers as well. Verse 11 uses the same word, likewise, that appears in verse 9, including women in the former requirements, dignified, stable, balanced in their lives. They are not to be malicious gossips. Now, you know, that was, that was the blood sport, if you will, of women, pagan women in the Roman Empire. For whenever they gathered, it was for verbal bloodletting. Okay? Some of that was imprinted into women in Ephesus until Christ set them free and washed them clean. In addition to the above qualifications put on men, women were to be calm, dispassionate, circumspect, and faithful in all things. Paul is not calling for automatons here, but for maturity in Christ. Verse 12 calls deacons to be one woman 
sort of men or one man sort of women. The necessity for marriage is not implied, but rather that the men and the women are to hold to a high view of Christian marriage. The deacon candidates are to be examined for the home life they lived. Were they good managers of their house and trainers by example of their children? These qualifications apply to all candidates, men or women. Paul finishes his writing about deacons with a statement in verse 13 that those who serve well as deacons will gain for themselves a good standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul writes two more verses to Timothy with his intent to come to be with him soon. Now, we know that Paul wrote this from Macedonia, and when he was moving in that, in that uh, region, he was remanded into custody, transported to Rome, and imprisoned. He you know, writes, and then he says, you know, if he was going to be delayed in coming to Ephesus, he had written out the instructions so that Timothy could teach and model to the house churches the manner of how to conduct oneself in the household of God. That reads as a strong exhortation to Timothy personally. Don't teach what you do not do. He continues to describe the house churches as the household of God, which in Greek is the ekklesia, the called out gatherings who worship the living God, which are to be the pillar and support of the truth. The house church are to live House churches are, are, were to live in an exemplary, holy way so that it would point to the truth of their faith. Forge family, we all need a goal to reach for, a target to aim at. And for two millennia, this has been the accepted standard for leadership. Holy Spirit leads us toward maturity. Some of us will desire leadership roles under the leading of Holy Spirit. If you sense that, pay the price of godliness in all of life to get equipped to lead the body of Christ. And not all will sense that prompt, but the standards set by leaders trickle down to those in the pew. If it is taught and modeled by Holy Spirit, all become capable of some form of godly leadership and service. Let's pray. God of leadership training, You lay out for us all the manner of life in Christ that is to be set in front of our families and the watching world. This day, what you value and we aspire to is being dismantled and ridiculed across our land. Right now, we turn to you, laying our very lives in front of you. Grow us up in grace and peace that our faith in you is strengthened. Whether we speak or serve, For we are presenting ourselves to be the pillars and support of the truths of God in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Forge family. Love you. We'll see you soon.